Alright, this is a series that I have had literally on my calendar more than a year. I've been looking forward to. Um, so for the last year, it's been like, it's coming, it's coming. I'm really excited about this series that we're going into called Love Does. Um, in 2007, National Geographic published this incredible photo of the actual human heart. And uh, this, uh, this is in a museum, I believe it's in Philadelphia. It's actually a heart that's been preserved from the 1800s. Looking pretty good for a heart from the 1800s. Um, but uh, uh, it, they published it in one of their publications called uh, Healing the Human Heart. And uh, it's, it's fascinating because when you look at the heart and what it's capable of, the human body has over 60,000 miles of blood vessels being our veins, our arteries, our capillaries, 60,000 miles running through our body. That's more than two times around the circumference of the the earth that our blood vessels lined up would be. And that our heart is this muscle, this, this pump at the center of it all that sends blood coursing through our bodies. And it's an amazing organ. And for millennia, the heart has been seen as the center of our human emotions. Uh, If you look at the Egyptians, they believed that the heart was the control center of the soul and it was the center of morality and that God spoke to individuals from the heart. As a matter of fact, when they would mummify bodies, they would put a scarab there because they were afraid that the heart would continue to speak after death and that was to keep the heart quiet. And so the Egyptians had this, this understanding of the heart. The ancient Chinese culture believed that the heart was the root of the body and the mind and the soul of life. And then, of course, when we look at Jewish culture 5,000 years ago, the Old Testament and into the New Testament, it abounds with references to the heart being the organ uh, that's the source of our conscience, our actions, our imaginations, our determination, our love, good, evil. And it's revealed as being kind of the source of the inner person as we read the Bible. Uh, For for instance, if you have your Bibles or if you're on the Bible app, you can look at Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. It says, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. We're to guard our hearts because it determines the direction that we're going. Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he rescues those whose spirits are crushed. And so in the first one, we see the heart is kind of the determiner of the direction of our life. In this one, we see that the brokenhearted are those whose spirits are broken, who, who emotionally are, are distraught. In, uh, uh, oh, in Psalm 51, I'm sorry, I jumped one there uh, on you. I apologize. Uh, it says, 51.10, it says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. So there we see the heart as a source of our conscience. And so uh, then in Matthew, when we jump to the New Testament, Jesus mentions the heart. In Matthew 6.21, he says, Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. So there's our passions. The things that our heart beat toward, beats towards is like the things that we are passionate about. And so the Bible gives this illustration of, of the heart. But in Western culture, the heart has really become more when we look at it as the source of love, right? We're, we're coming in. We are in February. By the way, warning to all you guys, February, okay, it is uh, coming up, that date that will not be mentioned. And, uh, but, but you see in grocery stores starting in December, you know, all the decorations that have hearts around them, right? Because hearts are, are a reference to uh, romance and, and these feelings of uh, the, kind of the, the romantic love. Uh, spiritually, though, we know it's more than that. Love is more than just an emotion or a condition or something we fall or stumble into. It's an action. It's something that's lived out. That's why I named this series Love does because 
love is more than just a feeling or emotion that comes over us. Love does. And so, the best expressions, though, the problem is the best possible expressions we can do as humans of love often fall short because they're tainted. Because our expressions of love uh, come from a human side that we're looking for something in return or maybe it's in response to something that we've received. Um, I came across a note from Ju- that Judah wrote us. I asked his permission to show this. He said, yes, I can show it. This is the note he wrote. He said, Mom and Dad, love you, Mom and Dad. I hope you are having a wonderful day. Please be comfortable for me, and you do not have to be alarmed. Love you, Judah. I don't know. I become alarmed when I see you don't need to be alarmed. That's when I immediately become alarmed. I wasn't alarmed till I read the note. Now I'm like, where's Judah? Has anybody seen Judah? What's going on? That's an interesting love note. Now, my mom gave me a box of memoirs this last year. She's cleaning out things, and she said, I don't want them, so you can have them. And I was like, thanks, Mom. Uh, but in it was included a note that I wrote to my grandmother. And uh, my, my mom actually wrote this for me. You can tell the handwriting is not a, a young child by my signature there. So she wrote this out. I dictated it. It says, I love you. I like you. I serve you. I love you a big, big, big bunch, and I serve you a whole bunch. And I do like you again. I like you a lot. And I want to go to your house today, but I can't. I do want to have more markers and your bag of pencils. That's all. I think I might have been buttering her up with the first half of that, perhaps. I'm looking for the pencils. Our, our versions of love are tainted. We look for what we're going to get reciprocated back, what we might receive in return. Our views of love have been skewed by culture, and even at times it's been skewed by religious systems. And so I want us, as we go into the series, as we grow in our knowledge of what love is, and as I hope we start to live out love better as followers of Jesus, we need to start at the source, at the origin, at the beginning, and that is at God's love. What is God's love? God is the originator. He's the characterization. He is the definition of what love is. And so you may have been in church culture for a while now, like I have, and maybe you've grown numb to the message of God's love. Maybe immediately when I said we're going to be talking about God's love, you've been like familiar with it, know this one. You know, when we go into autopilot mode, we've heard this story. But I hope that we get challenged by this because, yes, this is base camp Christianity. It's Christianity 101. You're saying, I want level 501, Pastor Brent. I want casting out demons level Christianity today. I want, you know, I want want raising the dead type stuff today. Well, let me tell you, we need to to establish and be reminded because I've been following Jesus my entire life. And I'm only 30 years old. And in the 25 years of my life, no, I... I've served Jesus my whole life, and I will tell you that sometimes I get challenged by, can God really love me? Sometimes I will sin, I will fail, and I think, does God really love me knowing what he knows? And I get kind of flabbergasted at the size of our world and all the people in it, and I go, do I really matter to God that much? Of the 7.8 billion people that are here, does my story matter that much? I don't know if you ever feel so small. And so we need to be reminded of God's love. I read an L.A. 
Times article, actually, this last week that was reporting a study that was done by Baylor University. Of the 85 to 90 percent of Americans that believe in God, did you know 85 to 90 percent of Americans believe in God? Of them, three quarters of them believe that God is either vindictive, he's distant, or he's critical. Three quarters. Um, in that study, 30, over 31% believe that God is vindictive. He's looking to inflict punishment on people. 31% of people who believe in God. Almost 25% believe that God is just a distant cosmic force that he kind of set the laws of nature in motion and then walked away. He's like, here's, here's the laws of thermodynamics. Best of luck to you all. And then just took off. 16% believe of respondents believe that God is critical and he watches the world with an unfavorable eye. And so we've got this three quarters of people. It is important that we understand God's love. If three quarters of people who believe in the existence of a God believe that he's either vindictive, distant, or critical. And so here we need to build a solid theology starting in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. It says this, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another for love comes from God. And anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God. For God is love. Here's the first thing we need to understand. That love is not something that God does. It's who he is. It's not... God can't help but love because it comes from who he is as in his being. It's not just one of his attributes. When, when you look at the attributes of something, maybe it's a car, you say this car, one of its attributes, it's, it's fast. Or one of its attributes is it's a gas guzzler or whatever it might be. You know, it has attributes to it. But God doesn't just have as an attribute that he has love. It is the definition of who he is. It, if you were to use the algebraic term, right, is means equals. God equals love. He defines the word itself. So it it flows out of his very identity. I didn't wake up this morning and go, you know what? I really need to try to be Brent today. I'm going to do my best. If anything, there's times where I'm like, I wish I was a little less Brent today. Um, Because that's just who I am. I don't have to make an effort at it because it's just my being. In the same way, God doesn't say, I need to try to be a little more loving today. Because it flows out of his very personality it's who he is the overwhelming central theme of the bible is about god's all-consuming all-encompassing his overwhelming love so when we think about movies and movie plots what are some movies this is this is to keep in your own mind i don't want you shouting them out because we're gonna have so many movies but when you think of a love story movie that just is an amazing movie that has a great story of love in it maybe there's sacrifice in it or there's redemptive love or uh, perhaps there's sacrifice or overcoming obstacles that are that seem overwhelming the bible is a story of god's relentless pursuit of drawing us back to himself in that way never giving up relentlessly pursuing us with with his love in romans chapter 5 verse 8 it says but god showed his great love for us By sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Jesus came to die for us. This is how God showed his love. How did he demonstrate his love? By sending Jesus for us while we were still sinners. And and, and the Bible also says while we were still the enemies of God. 
his enemies. Not just that we were like casual acquaintances. We were the actual sworn enemies of God and he still sent Jesus. You see, this story is it's an amazing unified narrative of God's moving heaven and earth so that he could reach you with his love. This story is a unified, there is a thread that goes through the whole thing of God moving all of creation so that he could find you today where you're at so that he could bring his love to you. And so it starts in chapter 1. I love chapter 1. The creation story is so cool. God speaks. He says, let there be light. And boom, the lights were on. And then God says, let there be the waters and the separation of the waters. And it all happens. And then God says, let there be living animals. And there's animals. And he says, let there be vegetation. And at the word of his mouth, the stars in the heavens are put into place. All he has to do is speak it. And all of these things come into being. But with people, it was different. Look at what, Gen- oh, little head. Look at what Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 says. God says this, let us make human beings in our image. Then the Lord God, and then moving on to chapter 2, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living being. So we were not just spoken into being like God could have done, but God got down into the dust and crafted us. He got down into the dirt and designed mankind. You think about the effort that goes into that versus speaking. He got down and he formed Adam out of the dust. And then he breathed the breath of life into him, being spirit. Here we have the reflected nature of God. Remember, he says, in his image, he created them. And so God has his image that's breathed into Adam. And then from Adam's side, he takes and creates. He creates Eve from his side. And there's this beautiful relationship between Adam and Eve. It says that God actually walked with them in the cool of the day in the garden. Can you imagine knowing God so well? You're like, time for our morning walk. And he walked with them. This beautiful relationship. This is what God intended. This is how he designed creation. He spoke all of these things, but he crafted Adam and Eve to know him. And he made these, 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 this beautiful creation to be known. And then he gave them the dignity of choice. He didn't just make robot automatons that followed God and said, yes, God, yes, God, yes, God. He said, I want you to be able to choose to love me. Because what is love without choice? God won't force himself on you. In our society, in our culture, to force love on someone, that's abuse, right? If you force love on someone, that's abuse or kidnapping, at very least. (laughs) But God's not abusive. He's a gentleman. Your phone's right over there. I think it's nearby. (laughs) So he placed in the garden one tree and one choice. Now, there were lots of trees, but one particular tree was a tree of choice. All things in that garden were permissible. You think about this. Everything was permissible. Everything was edible. Everything was okay. He gave one choice. One law. Think about this. Only one law. You see, the garden event, I wrote this down. This was out of my own brain. I was so proud of it. The garden event is proof that even if there was only one rule, we would break it. (laughs) We've got lots of rules. But the garden event proves that if God gave one rule, we'd be like, I'm going to do that thing. That's our human nature. 
to push back. But God says, I'm going to give you the power of choice. I'm going to give you the dignity of choosing my way or your way. Here's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You can eat it from anything else. You can even eat from the tree of life. But this is the one thing I say is to not do, and you have choice. And Adam and Eve, of course, we know what they did. They, they revealed their true nature. We're rebellious. We chose our own way. They ate the fruit, and death and sin came into the world. And if God is truly holy, if God is truly perfect, and absolutely nothing impure can exist within His presence, His very righteousness will consume anything unrighteous. The fury of His wrath consumes anything that's not perfectly righteous, and our sin immediately separated us from God. Otherwise, we would be consumed. And so we were separated from God. Romans 5.12 says, When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone. For everyone sinned. I know, I like to point at Adam and Eve and like, you ruined it for everyone. We all sinned. We've all done just, just fine on our own. We've all done really good at doing that. But now that death is in the world, God, let me tell you, has not given up. He always had a plan. He delivered, first of all, the thing he brought was the law. As the Israelites were going through the the desert, God gave to Moses the law. And the law was a sacrificial system that would provide a means of maintaining our relationship with God. There would be a a priest, a priestly advocate that would make sacrifices and be kind of the the go-between, the advocate for the people between God and people so that there would still be a semblance of relationship. And so there was this sacrificial system where the blood of an animal took the place of the blood of people. But why did God give us the law? Have you ever wondered that? Why why not just, you know, everybody sinned, let's just do our best here. The first five books of the Bible, if you look at the Bible, a huge chunk of it is what we call the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And some of it is pretty heavy reading. And there's so many little things and and ticky-tack things, 613 laws to be exact. And so he delivers this, this law, but why did he do it? You see, the law was created to be a mirror, not to be a ladder. Of these 613 laws, it's impossible to follow them all. None of us can climb that ladder of obeying the law high enough to reach God. It's impossible. We all fail, we all fall, we all come short. There's a story in the New Testament In the book of Mark, I believe it's in chapter 10, where a rich young guy comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, what do I need to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you need to uh, love the Lord with all your heart. You need to uh, honor your father and mother. You can't steal. You can't lie. He gives him these things and he goes, I have been obeying those since I was knee high off a grasshopper, Lord. I'm, I'm doing pretty good. He says, what else? And Jesus says, well, you're a rich guy. How about you go sell everything Give it to the poor and come follow me. And it says the the rich young man went away sad because he owned many, many things. And we will all find a point where we fall short of being able to earn eternal life. Being able to earn heaven. And so this, this guy thought he had it all together, but we will all come short. Rather than being a ladder to where we just need to get high enough to reach God, the law, the Bible says, is a mirror. And when we look into that mirror, what we see reflected back is how far short we fall. I don't know if you've ever looked in the mirror and go, I'm falling pretty short, a literal mirror. I I do that often. I'm like, oh boy, there's work to be done here. Um, In the same way, when we spiritually look into the reflection of the law that God gave, what looks back at us is how far short we come. Look at what Romans 3.20 says. It says, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. So that's what it does. It shows us how far, far short we've fallen. 
So if we know that that's why that exists, then why does blood have to be shed? Have you ever felt bad about all the sheep and the goats and the rams and the different things that had to be killed? Why did it have to be shed? Because the Bible tells us a price had to be paid. In Hebrews 9.22, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood. You see, why doesn't God just snap his fingers and, and give us forgiveness? Why doesn't, why doesn't that just go much easier? Why does blood have to be shed? Because God is just. If the penalty for sin is death and the wrath of God must be satisfied, it would be literally counter to God's nature to overlook what is justice. It would be literally introducing something that is counter to his character to say, I'm just going to overlook what is justice and needs to be exercised here. So there must be a, a, a penalty for sin. Sometimes we forget that God is not just loving. He is just and loving. And because he's a righteous judge, true and holy, he must punish sin. And so even before Adam and Eve sinned, animal sacrifice wasn't his plan. This wasn't what God was like, you know what? Here we go, we'll just start killing animals and that'll make it better. Before Adam and Eve even sinned, God knew what was going to happen and Jesus was his plan. Jesus wasn't God's plan B. He didn't send Jesus because he had to or he was obligated to or we were just so darn cute. He had to send Jesus for us. As a matter of fact, we were, we were fallen and sinful and gross. But yet God was compelled to do it. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse uh, 4. Ephesians 1, verse 4 says, Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do. And it gave him great pleasure. So it wasn't obligation. Sometimes we view, view Jesus as like he was obligated to come for us and we need to feel really guilty about it. Let me tell you, Jesus was excited to come for you. It gave God great pleasure to come and adopt us into his family. He didn't rescue us out of obligation, but rather you are the object of God's relentless obsession. How cool is that thought? That God is relentlessly obsessed with you. He tracks you. He's, he's, he's a weird stalker in that way, but it's beautiful. He wants to know you and to be known by you. Hebrews, uh, Jesus' substitution then to, is, is about how God took this situation with the sacrificial system, with goats and sheep and all this, but even more than being the better replacement for those, he took our own place where we deserved the punishment is what Jesus did. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 12 through 14, it says, With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time, and secured our redemption forever. Yeah. We no longer have to sacrifice animals. Jesus' work was done once and for all. Once and for all. And it says under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. But just think, how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. This is the beauty of this love story that we've been reading. Is that the cross is the place where God's love and God's justice collided. 
God's overwhelming love for you, even though he loved you so much, that could not, that could not uh, take away sin, just make it magically disappear. But rather, there must be something that pays the price for sin. And so at the cross, justice and God's love collide in what Jesus did for us. And that's where we meet wholeness. That's where we meet salvation. That's where we meet relationship once again. God's love for us led to a moment of action. It wasn't just sentiment. How many of you have ever gotten in trouble for just having sentimental love and no action to your love? If you actually loved me, maybe you'd wash the dishes once in a while. (laughs) Laying on the couch watching football. Oh, I appreciate you so much. You're so amazing. A lot of sentimental love. God's love wasn't just, oh, I love those people so much. It really breaks my heart that they sinned and they're going to hell. But rather, it was action that came to it. I'm going to go and save them. I'm going to rescue them. I'm going to meet them at Calvary. Calvary, And I'm going to, I'm going to bring them, ransom them back to myself. Probably the best and most well-known verse in the Bible. Even if you don't know Jesus, you probably know this verse. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He gave his one and only son. Jesus died for us as a substitution for what we have earned with our sin. Imagine with me if you were crossing a busy street and you were in just a brief moment of distraction. You got a really great notification on your phone and you step out and a truck is bearing down on you. And the moments before it hits you, I look up and being the loving pastor and friend that I am, I see you there. And I dive out into the street and say, no. (laughs) And push you onto the sidewalk and the the truck comes through. And I saved your life, but at the cost of my own. Now, although I took your place, despite my selfless act, one day the inevitability of death will come. While you were saved in that moment, it was in that moment. Yet death will still come. I just prolonged what will happen to all of us. But if we take that lens and look at Jesus, if Jesus had come and he had lived a literally perfect life, never sinned, taken our sin upon himself to the cross and died, that would be an amazing selfless act. It would be a wonderful act of martyrdom for us. But it would have ended there. We would remain stuck right where we started because inevitably sin would once again lay claim to us. We would fail. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in verses 14 and 17 it says that if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised your faith is futile futile, and you are still in your sins. So Jesus' death, a lot of people can agree and believe that Jesus was a literal historical figure. They can even believe that he died and he was a very good man. But let me tell you, a good man dying for people does not give us salvation. It's through the resurrection of Christ that we have life. Jesus didn't just die, he overcame. He didn't just die, he overcame. I, uh, three or four years ago, Hosanna and I got to go to Italy 
And we got to go to the Vatican and different places and see just the massive amount of artwork. And, and you know you're seeing a lot of artwork when you see something that was done by Da Vinci. And you go, oh, that was done by Da Vinci, yeah. And you're seeing other things. It's just like, how in the world are we seeing this amount of art? But something that overwhelmed me was the amount of art, sculptures, paintings, and otherwise, that was of Jesus suffering and dying. I, I am so blown away at the sacrifice of Christ and what he did for us. But when, when all of the, the story and things that we see are of Jesus either in suffering in de- or in death or in the arms of his mother as she's weeping and, and mourning over his loss, but we don't see the resurrection, we are lost in that moment. But the resurrection is what gives power. The resurrection is what gives life. And maybe I'm preaching my Easter sermon too early, I don't know. But the resurrection is what gives us eternity. And so this is what sets us free from sin and death. See, real love emanates from this moment. This is what real love is. Jesus victorious. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says, This is real love. Say real. Real. Say it with conviction. Real. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. See, real love emanates from God's nature. It's preemptive. It's not based out of what one party can offer the other or what can be reciprocated or earned. That can't be what love is. Love comes from a different source. And so let me ask you this. Who then do you think that you are? Do you believe that you truly are deeply loved by God? Some of us have allowed a mistake Or a conscious choice that we made to be the answer to that question. And we say, no, there's no way God could love me. Because we think back to that moment. That thing. That defining element. God knows what that thing is. And sometimes we don't go to confess to the Lord because we think this will somehow change the dynamic. Or this is really shameful. Can I tell you there's nothing we would say to God that would shock him? like, oh, I didn't realize that one. God knows what that thing is. A.W. Tozer said this. He says, Jesus Christ knows the worst about you. Nonetheless, he's the one who loves you the most. See, when we confess our sin to God, we may feel like we're breaking news to him or we could change some sort of dynamic. But let me tell you, your story is no surprise to him. Even below all the layers of our sin, our shame, our brokenness, God still sees his image in you. That, that life that he breathed into Adam that day, he sees that reflection and he says, I love you. He's for you. He's with you. He loves you. Ephesians 3, 18 and 19. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep His love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to fully understand. We can't even grasp it. And Paul's praying, if you would only understand the size and the magnitude of God's love for you. Take a look at this video as we get ready to close this morning. I ran to the dark because I needed a hiding place. No matter what I did to be good, I kept messing it all up. Like I had a parasite, a monster inside of me that was determined to take every beautiful thing and make it ugly. If anyone ever found out I was afraid, they'd be so disappointed or angry. 
before they could run away from me, I ran away from them. I was the master of my own life. I discovered things that would give me bursts of happiness, but everything faded. I hunted for anything that might be sustainable. It was all I really wanted, something deeper, to feel loved instead of broken. In the dark, I felt comfortable, never whole. There had to be a reason I was created, a bigger picture, an origin that made the universe and everything in it, including me. I suspected that my breath came from somewhere, something, someone, that my life wasn't just a random occurrence based on an accidental blast. I watched the sun set and rise. I saw trees grow tall from tiny seeds. There were cycles in the earth I could explain, some that were a total mystery. All of this was evidence of a creator, an all-knowing but distant God, watching from somewhere outside the darkness. God who knew my shame and was probably just as disappointed as everyone else. What I never saw coming was how much this God loved me, what he would give to be closer to me, closer to you. He knew we needed help, so he invaded the world with light. God sent his son Jesus to earth with a simple mission, show them how much I love them. When Jesus arrived, he had every right to be judgmental. He was the son of God. He could have saw everything we've done with this world, a world his father created and reacted with punishment or disgust. Instead, he demonstrated God's love. He showed us God's love was radical, teaching messages that challenged the expectations of the rules we had written. He showed us God's love saw everything we did in the darkness, and yet he still ran straight for us. He showed us God's love was overwhelming, unshapeable, unlike anything we had ever known. Jesus knew the cost of our sin was death, and only he could pay the price, so he paid it. He sacrificed himself to give me new life with God. He died on a cross for me so that I could know exactly how much God loves me. He rose from the grave three days later, destroying death and proving we could trust everything he said when he was with us. Nothing in the dark offers that kind of love. Nothing in the dark invites me to stay except for things that fade. From outside in the light, I have a whole and lasting life. I'm invited to be loved by the God who spent all of history making move after move to get closer to me. The light reveals God is persistent, gracious, love everlasting. All that is required from us is a response. All that we give up is our life in the dark. I'm a sinner in need of a savior. We don't have to hide anymore. In God's light, you are loved. There's a, a 
Latin phrase, and I don't remember what it is, but it's a, a phrase for when you're walking through life, and you, have you ever noticed somebody just going about their life, and you have come to the sudden realization that their life is just as complex and unique as yours is? Like, they've got a whole storyline. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in ours, and you think about all the complexity and relationships and things that are going on in their mind and their life. It's just as rich as yours. And, and you think about all those that are going on and how... We feel like, God, do you see me where I'm at? He sees every single story. He sees you and he pursues you with his love. But God's no bully. He's not going to force his way into your life. He's not going to hit you over the head until you're so uh, overwhelmed that you have to have a relationship with him. Rather, he is just present. He has pursued you, but yet this comes down to a choice of, do I receive this relationship he offers? All of us have chosen to go our own way. And that leads us to death. It leads us away from God, but he has done everything he can to bridge that divide through Jesus. And he's available to you and I now. Oswald Sanders said this. He said, each of us is as close to God as we choose to be. Maybe you haven't made that choice. Where do you stand? Have you made that choice to say, God, I want to know you? I want to experience this hope, this life, this salvation that you offer. I want this freedom. I want to be restored. I want the joy. I want all these things, God. I want to know you for who you really are. Can we take a moment and bow our heads and close our eyes before we get ready to continue in worship and close this service out? But before we do, I want to give you this opportunity. Today is the day of salvation. If you're in this room this morning, you say, Pastor Brent, I want to give my life to Christ. I want to receive this life. I believe in faith that Jesus is who he said he is. I believe that he offers me life through his resurrection and I receive that. I want to be restored to relationship with God. Maybe I've seen him as vindictive or angry, or maybe I've had bitterness because of some things I've walked through in my life, and I have uh, shunned God. I've pushed him away because I feel like he is somehow bringing things down on me. But, but I recognize that I'm, I'm living in a broken world with broken people, and, and he is trying to restore things to me. And I want to come back to God. If you're in this room right now, and maybe this is your first time, or maybe you've been running from God for a long time, hard and fast in the other direction. But it's time to come back to Jesus. Will you raise your hand and raise it high? I want to pray with you this morning. Will you raise it up? Raise it high. Thank you. Yes, I see that hand. Thank you. Yes, I see that hand. Thank you. You can put your hands down. Right now, church, we're going to pray together. And this prayer is a position of our heart. This is a prayer that is about faith. And obedience, it's not found magically in the words, but it's about the position of our hearts as we pray it out loud. So everyone in this room, if we've prayed this prayer a thousand times, or maybe this is your first time, pray it with the same conviction. Let's all commit our lives to this Jesus who has come for us, all right? Say this after me. Dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. Before I knew you, while I was your enemy, you still loved me. And you came for me. 
and you died for me, and you took my sin, and you offer me eternal life, because you're alive. And so today, I receive that life. I give you my heart. I give you my passions. I give you my future. You are my king, and you are my God, from this day forward. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. God is good. God is good. I celebrate with those that made that decision today. Let's continue in worship. Let's stand together as we respond to the goodness and the faithfulness of God together. Thank you.